This morning we will be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18. It is the next stage in the story of David after his defeat and slaying of Goliath. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him like his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he, was, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles." For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, and she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. 
Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would use your word this morning, that by the power of your spirit, we would be changed by your word. We would know who you are. We would know more what you desire of us. And we would know more of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. How can we know the state of our hearts? The heart is not an easy thing to look into. But the Bible tells us that one way to see the heart is to to look at the actions that the heart produces. A heart that is far from God will produce actions that are hostile to God. A heart that is near to God will produce actions that are desirous of being closer and closer to God. And so what we have here this morning in 1 Samuel 18 are hearts on display before us. We see three things about these hearts this morning. First, we see a heart that is far from God. We gain insight still more into Saul's heart to see that he is far from God and we see what that produces. Second, we see a heart that is humble before God. Actually, we see two, both David and Jonathan, hearts that are humble before the Lord and what they produce. And then third, we see hope for the heart. Because the overarching story of the Bible is not that you are given a heart and that is the heart that you must have the entirety of your existence. No, the overarching story of the Bible is that God can and does change hearts. And that he gives hope to hearts even that are far from him. A heart that is far from God 
A heart that is humble before God. And a heart that has hope from God. Well, as we come to this passage here, it is important for us to see that Saul is in a very bad place. He is consumed, and we will see this more and more, by fear and envy. You see, he should be celebrating with Israel, shouldn't he? He's the king of Israel. And Israel has just witnessed the greatest victory of Saul's kingdom. Goliath, the enemy that everyone in Israel feared, that no one would dare stand up to, the one who taunted the living God, has been defeated and slain. The Philistines have been routed, and Israel has a new champion to lead them into battle. You would think that Saul would be celebrating the safety of his kingdom. But Saul is very aware that the victory was not his. And I think also that Samuel's pronouncement to Saul is weighing heavily on him. You remember that Samuel came to Saul and he said, The Lord has taken the kingdom from you and given it to one better than you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was putting together the resume of someone better than the king, I would start with, defeated the champion of the enemy. So... That is weighing very heavily upon Saul. He sees David not as one who has won the victory, but as a rival. And the real challenge for Saul is that he has no hope to turn to. Because he's abandoned the Lord. He's got no place to go. He can't be encouraged. He can't reach out to the Lord in prayer. He's abandoned the Lord entirely. And so what we begin to see here is the blackness of Saul's heart come out into the open. And we begin to see it first in the relationship that Saul has with David. Now, does it seem odd to you as well that Saul shows absolutely no gratitude to David? David has just rescued the Israelite army. He's defeated the enemy. And as we start in the beginning of chapter 8, what I would at least expect is some show of gratitude. Thank you, David. We appreciate you killing that enemy giant. We don't have to face him anymore. But it's completely silent. It's almost as if Saul needs his mother there with him. You kids know what this is like, right? When you forget to say thank you and mom comes up to you and gives you a little elbow, say thank you. Say thank you to all of them. Be polite. right? Saul's not even polite. He doesn't have any gratitude to what David has done. And it might have just been a rumor in chapter 17, verse 25, but we were told that the man who kills Goliath will get all kinds of riches and a daughter of the king and all of his family will be freed from taxation. And as I read chapter 18, none of that comes to pass. There's no reward for David. Instead, Saul seems like his old black-hearted self. He's only interested in using David for his own purposes. Look at verse 2. Saul wants David at his palace, so he commands David to stay. Look 
at verse 5. He wants David to lead the men out to war. So he commands David to do that. All Saul wants from David is what he can provide to Saul. Now, it all comes to a head in verse 6. The women come out with a song to celebrate. Now, it may not even be that they are trying to provoke Saul. At first glance, we hear this couplet, and we sort of, again, sympathize with Saul. Well, Saul doesn't get top billing. He gets first billing, but not top billing. He's only got thousands. David has ten thousands. But what we need to realize is, is that this is a standard function of Hebrew poetry. If you look throughout your Bible, you will see over and over again, especially in the Psalms, a couplet in a poem that says something about thousands, and the refrain is something about ten thousands. So, I don't think the women are actually even intending to insult Saul. After all, they've said Saul has slain his thousands, and my question is, where? He was hiding behind a rock before, wasn't he? So, it's not like they're trying to make him look bad. They're, they're just using a Hebrew technique. But you can't imagine why this does provoke Saul. And Saul will have absolutely none of it. Look at verse 8. And Saul was very angry. He's not just upset. He's very angry. And this saying displeased him. Now, why is Saul angry? Well, I think first and foremost, this statement reveals the fear that is in his heart. Because isn't it true that when we are afraid, we lash out in anger at people? That our shortest tempers come when we feel like we may fail at something. Whether something might not work out the way it's supposed to be. Whether we're afraid dinner is going to be burned, or we're afraid we can't make the mortgage payment. Someone comes up to us, and we're sharp with them. Because you see, we're afraid. The other thing is that Saul does know that there is someone out there who is better than him, who is about to take the kingdom from him, and David sure looks like this. He's envious of the victory that David has won. It's as if Saul had wished David had been defeated just so he couldn't claim the prize of victory. Now, remember, this is the way of Saul's heart. In chapter 14, he took credit for his son's Jonathan's victory. Do you remember? And that's because Saul's heart cannot be satisfied in the deliverance that the Lord brings. Instead, all he thinks about is himself. And this is where the ungodly heart comes out. We see it clearly in verse 9. And Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. Now this is not, he's watching David to see what he does. He wants to see what happens to David. No, this is, I've got my eye on you. And the minute you mess up, I'm all over you. It's suspicion from the get-go. It's worst of motives at all times. This is Saul's envying ungodly spirit. Brothers and sisters, watch out for an envying spirit. It comes up 
when spite wells up in us when we look at others' gifts. It comes up when we resent the praise that others have received for what they have done. You see, an envying spirit is a sign of a heart that is far from God. But the most dangerous thing about fear and envy is that it doesn't stop there. It's not just the circumstances that are causing this to happen. Oftentimes, when we are envious or when we are afraid, we think all we need to do is fix the circumstances. And when we fix them, everything will be better and our attitude will be better. But there's an old saying, crisis does not create character. Crisis reveals character. And that's what we have here with Saul. His fear and his envy overwhelms him and it leads to rage and despair. Saul's heart is far from God. Remember, he's been disobedient. He is under God's judgment and now he has nowhere to turn. Now picture the scene. This is after the great victory of Israel. And what is Saul doing? He's brooding in his palace. He's wandering around, muttering to himself, holding a spear. This is after the greatest victory of his reign. And his mood is so dark that he actually throws a spear twice at David. Now that's horrible. But stop and think about that for a moment. I don't know about you, but if somebody throws a spear at me, they don't get a second chance. But see how they're treating Saul. David avoids the spear not once but twice and then does what? Continues to play the liar. And everyone else around Saul does not say something like, this is insane. Get the spear out of his hand. Put him to bed. No, they're like, it's Saul. And so what that tells us is, It's not just about this moment. That's Saul's heart. That's how he acts all the time. This is normal, crazy Saul. His heart is so far from God that it expresses itself in the way he talks, the way he thinks, and the way he acts. Now, they might not have thought it was premeditated, although we know it was from verse 11. I think I'll pin David to the wall. But Saul just gets darker and darker. And do you see the progression here in chapter 18? The more the Lord blesses David, and the more Saul knows that, the more angry and fearful he gets. Over and over again in verse 12, in verse 15, again in verse 29, Saul sees that the Lord is with David. He knows that the Lord is with David and that makes him fearful and angry. And he begins to despair. At the height of all of this, Saul would rather that his enemies triumph so that David would be killed. Now, think about that plot that Saul makes. He says, I'll I'll give you my daughter in marriage. And there's a plot behind it. And the plot is, 
I hope my enemies kill Israel's greatest asset in war. The captain who's defeated Goliath, I hope they kill him. This doesn't even make practical sense. It doesn't help Saul's war machine, does it? But you see, that's where the hardened heart goes. A heart that is far from God doesn't even seek its own good. It's so filled with darkness and hate. Have you ever said to yourself, observing someone in the public eye, how could they possibly have done that? They couldn't have dreamed it would turn out well for them. And the answer is, they don't care. They don't know. They're so consumed with wickedness and hate and envy and fear that they can't even act in their own interest. The second thing that we see after examining Saul is we see a different kind of heart, a heart that is humble before God. And once again, Jonathan provides a contrast. You remember this was true in chapter 14. When Saul was cowardly, Jonathan was bold. And we've seen Saul's response to David. So we should expect Jonathan's response to be the same. After all, David is a more direct threat to Jonathan than he is to Saul. Saul is still the king. Jonathan is the next king. And so if David gets to be king, guess who gets cut out of the picture? It's Jonathan. And so we should expect him to see David as a threat. To be afraid of David. To be angry at David. But this is where we get more insight into the man that Jonathan is. Almost straight away there is a bond between David and Jonathan. So much so that this is perhaps the greatest story of friendship in all of the scriptures. It says that Jonathan's soul was knit with David's. And that word knit has as its context almost a political undertone. It's used later in this book to describe a conspiracy. Jonathan is with David. Why? Because Jonathan knows David is a man of God. And so notice that Jonathan takes the initiative here. Everything else is secondary. And he does something completely remarkable in verse 4. He takes off his robe. He takes off his armor his bow and his sword, and he gives them to David. Now, one of the things that we must remember in Jonathan and David's time is that the clothes really do make the man. And this is not in a fashion sense. This is people could tell who you were and your station in life by the clothing you wore and by the color of the clothing you wore. This is a royal robe that Jonathan is giving to David. As far as Jonathan is concerned, he is giving up his rights as the crown prince to David. Now, this is the exact opposite reaction from Saul's. Saul's envy and his rage spring from a selfish heart and from selfish priorities. Jonathan's love for David springs from a concern for God's glory and his kingdom. You see, where Saul sees a rival, Jonathan sees someone who glorifies God. And instantly they are together because Jonathan's main purpose in life is the glory of God. That's why they are so close. 
This is, I think, also some good practical advice for us as well. That a heart that is humble before God produces true friendship. True friendship does not come from liking the same hobbies or having the same interests. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be friends with people who have the same interests you do. But true, lasting friendship comes from having hearts that are knit together, bound by a common love of the Lord. That's why the friendship between Jonathan and David is so strong. Perhaps you've heard someone make a statement like this. Well, since I've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believed on Jesus. My siblings don't believe in Jesus. I feel closer to people in church than I do to my siblings. So did Jonathan. He was closer to David than he was to his father because they were bound together by a love for the Lord. Now, notice that David that is, God's anointed one, gets these varying reactions from people. Isn't this exactly what Jesus did? Divided people? He says in Matthew chapter 10, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And we read that, and we cringe a little bit, don't we? We think, I don't know if that's very nice of Jesus to break up a family. Why is he doing that? But you see, Jesus is not acting to break up a family. Jesus is describing what happens when hearts are different toward the Lord. If a heart is far from the Lord, and another heart is before the Lord, humble before the Lord, they can't be together. They don't have a common goal. They don't have a common purpose. They don't have a common love. This is why David gets these different reactions. This is also a great act of faith by Jonathan. Because no one in their right mind would give up their rights. Isn't that true? What would you think if you had a friend who was selling a house? And as a couple walked through to look at the house, your friend said to his real estate agent, you know what, take $30,000 off the price. Just because I want him to have the house. Just take 30, take 50, take 50,000 off the house. Right? Does that ever happen? No, that never happens. Because people don't do that. Except that's exactly what Jonathan's doing here. He's willingly being the lesser and allowing David to be the greater. Why would he do this? It's because Jonathan trusts the Lord. He knows God's picture is bigger than his. And his humility is actually a sign of submitting to God's will. It's not a, oh no, please, after you kind of humility. It's, I know God's in charge, and I know he'll take care of me, and he has a plan, and I trust him. That's what Jonathan is doing. Now, a humble heart is also content with what the Lord is doing. And we see this even more clearly in David. Now, in our modern day, we might expect David to want what's his, what's coming to him. After all, look at all that he's done. Where's his respect? Where's the reward that he is owed? 
I don't know that we see this any more clearly in our society than in the world of sports. You see this when someone becomes a free agent in a certain sport, and they begin to say, I demand what's coming to me. You need to pay me not just what I'm worth, you need to pay me more than that guy. So everybody knows I'm better than that guy. But we also do that in our own lives also, don't we? We want what's coming to us. But do you ever notice here what David is doing? He's doing anything that's asked of him. He's just defeated Goliath. Come into the palace, David. Okay. Go lead out the troops, David. Okay. Go play the liar, David. Okay. Now, you would think when someone said to him, David, play the liar, that David might look at one of the servants and say, now help me with this. Uh, Who was it that killed Goliath? Was it me or was it you? Oh, I think it was me. How about you play the liar? I'm the giant killer. I don't need to play the liar. You play the liar. You lead the troops out. I'm going to take a rest here. I've already defeated the Philistines once. But you see, David doesn't do that at all. He's completely humble. He does whatever is asked of him. He's completely dependent upon the Lord. Now remember also that David knows he was anointed. He was there when it happened. He heard Samuel say that he is to be the next king, that he is God's choice to be the king. Not just that it will fall to him, he's God's choice to be the king. And yet, look at how patient David is. Can you believe that in the midst of all of this, he doesn't strive at all? Let me ask you a question. How is your patience? Now, let me make it a bit more pointed. How is your patience when you know you rightly deserve something? That's hard, isn't it? But that's what a humble heart before the Lord brings out. David doesn't need to be impatient. He trusts God's promises. God's made a promise. David will live on it. He doesn't know how it's going to come true, but he knows it's going to come true. Why? Because God said it. You see, he doesn't look at circumstances like Saul does. He doesn't try to manipulate or plot or plan. David knows that the Lord will bring his promise to pass. When there's this offer of marriage to David in verse 17, now there is wickedness behind it, but there's no reason to suspect it. After all, there was this rumor that the killer of Goliath would get a daughter of Saul. And they offer David to be the son-in-law to the king. And David begins then by humbly pleading his low position. Now, I want you to understand, this is not David being like a bargainer in the marketplace. Oh, no, I couldn't. Oh, sure, you must. Oh, no, 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 I couldn't. Oh, sure, you must. Okay, I will. That's not what David's doing. Because David actually does come from a poor family. See, we read David and we think, King David on the throne. You ought to think, David, the son of Jesse, owner of the smelly animals. That's who David is. And when David says, I come from a a humble family, my father's clan, he really means it. Because do you remember who David's ancestors are? 
One of them was named Ruth. Now when you hear Ruth, you don't hear heroine of the Bible. You hear formerly pagan Gentile. He's got non-Jewish blood in his family, prominently in his family. But as if that isn't enough, he's got someone else in his family tree. Do you remember that? Rahab, wait for it, the harlot. David is telling the truth when he says, I'm poor and I come from a humble family. Who am I? God has given me what he's given to me. Who am I to presume that I should be on the throne? And so David resists Saul. Saul responds the way his heart only can with yet more cruelty. Okay, fine. I'm going to give my daughter to another man. You can watch her marry him. Then another occasion comes up. Another plot for Saul. He tries to attack David by giving David his other daughter. Now, there is the same kind of a plot here... Saul is hoping that when David tries to earn the bride price for Michal, that he'll be killed by the Philistines. That's why Saul gives the bride price that he does. We read that and we're kind of squeamish and we go, yee, why that? Why don't you ask for like a finger or like an earlobe or something? There's a reason why. Saul knows that every time David gets a part of that price, the Philistines are enraged even more. He's trying to make David the most hated man in all of Israel. But that's not really the worst part of what Saul is doing. Do you notice that Saul says that Michal may become a snare to David? Now, this word for snare is used throughout the Old Testament. And almost invariably, it has a connection with idolatry. The foreign gods of other people are a snare to Israel. Intermarrying is a snare to Israel. You see, Saul has come to the place where he actually hopes David abandons the Lord and worships false gods. The king of God's people has come to that place. There's a dual threat here. But David responds that he is content with what he's been given. He says, I don't have, I'm poor, I don't have the price. Now, I want you to see another thing here. That contentment with what the Lord has given to us is not complacency. Contentment is not a reason to sit on our hands. Because as soon as Saul says to David, you can earn the bride price by simply doing your duty to me, the country, and God, David gets up and he's ready to go. It pleases him. He says, if you're asking me to do what I'm supposed to do, to honor God, and I can be blessed by God for that, that's great. I'm going to go after it. You see, sometimes we think contentment is sitting around and taking the dregs, eating mush all the time. No! Contentment is trusting the Lord that He will provide the blessings that He wills in His time. That's contentment with God. And we are called to act with all energy that we can for the glory of God. That's exactly what David does. So what do we take away from this passage? What do you do if you find yourself envious of other people? What if you are always afraid of things that are going to happen? What hope 
do you have for your heart? There is hope. And that hope begins with giving up all of our strategies. You see, you may want to live a life that is humble before God. You want to put others first. You want to develop deep relationships and then be glad when they succeed. You want to be content with what you have. Perhaps even this morning you feel a little bit guilty about not being content when you look around you and you see how much less other people have. Well, where that begins is in recognizing that you are not in control. That was Saul's chief problem. It wasn't David's popularity. It wasn't the lady's song. It wasn't even his enemies. His chief problem was that he had no relationship with the Lord. He viewed God as something, yes, something, to provide for him what he wanted. We must understand that God does not exist to serve us and bless us. And once we do, we are able to give up all of our planning, give up all of our manipulating. Think about all that Saul did, the scheming, the murderer threats, using his own family as a pawn in a plot. And all he had to do was to repent and to seek God's grace. What our strategizing reveals is that we don't trust God. And so when we trust the Lord, we give up all of our strategies, all of our manipulations. But there is more to the humble life than simply avoiding sin. It is good to avoid sin, but we need to also actively trust the Lord. If Saul gives us a picture of the anxious life without God, then David shows us a humble life that trusts God. David doesn't try to use God for success, and we don't see him pursuing his own way and using God. Now, he is successful, but that is because the Lord is with him. Over and over again, David succeeds, and we are told that God is at the heart of it. But there's a caution here. It doesn't mean we can judge our faith by our success. Because if David had fallen in battle, God would still be God. Did the flood mean that God abandoned us here? Did those whose homes actually flooded and have damage, were they guilty of some kind of secret sin that the others of us were not? No, of course not. You see, that is because when we submit to God and when we live humbly before Him, He has promised us true blessings that go beyond this life. Being a millionaire here is nothing. Living to 110 is nothing compared to the riches that are found in Jesus Christ. You see, that's what we are promised. The truth of God's word is that the Lord being with you is the solution to your heart. God was with David over and over again. Does that remind you of a name? Our Lord Jesus Christ is called... Emmanuel. What does it mean? 
God is with us. You see, Jesus is with his people. Jesus promises to be with those who trust him by faith. And he shows us that this can happen. Even the worst of sinners with the blackest of hearts and the most fear and envy can change because of Jesus. I know it's true. Because there's another Saul in the Bible. There's a Saul who became Paul. And Jesus changed who he was. He changed his heart. Jesus promises to be with you by faith. To never leave you nor forsake you. Will you trust him today? Jesus is the one you need that your heart might be right before God and that you might love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. Let's pray.